Sound of Movies with today's host, Joan Andrews. Welcome to The Sound of Movies, where we play for you the music behind the scenes while we narrate the stories of feature films. Today, we're going to listen to the music of Jaws from 1975. The story of Jaws is based on a novel by Peter Benchley. The music of Jaws was composed by John Williams. Jaws tells the story of Amity Island, a seaside village whose summer is threatened by the feedings of a great white shark. Will man or beast prevail? We start with the opening music of the film from 1975, Jaws. The film opens at a late-night campfire on the beach. One young man catches the eye of a young woman who's sitting outside the circle. He goes to meet her. She tells him her name is Chrissy, and then she immediately encourages him to run with her to the ocean for a late-night swim. She goes into the water first. The young man, it turns out, is too inebriated to join her. She's enjoying her swim until something bites. And it bites some more. For a moment, she grabs onto a buoy but she's not safe for long. Meanwhile, the young man remains incapacitated on the beach. A rescue is not in Chrissy's future. Chrissy's remains are found on the beach the next morning. Chief Brody, the new sheriff of Amity Island, believes she was killed by a shark. But the mayor of the town convinces him to keep the beaches open, so as not to ruin the summer season. So the next day, a nervous Chief Brody sits at the beach watching his children, and those of the rest of the town, play in the water. The screaming and the splashing bother no one but him. until the screaming and the splashing come from little Alex Kittner. People can hardly believe their eyes. But everyone knows now 
there is a man-eating shark off the shores of Amity Island. The panic is on. Mrs. Kittner puts out a reward for that shark, and fishermen from all over the country come to catch it. And indeed, a big shark is caught. The town is celebrating the catch of this shark, particularly since the summer season opens the next day on 4th of July. Chief Brody wants to join them in that celebration, but he's not sure that he can, because Matt Hooper, the marine scientist the town has hired to help find this shark, isn't sure the shark that was caught is the right shark. Before Chief Brody can figure out what to do about it, a grieving Mrs. Kittner appears in the crowd. She slaps his face because she has just learned that Chief Brody knew a shark had killed someone else just a week before, and he didn't close the beaches. Now her boy was dead. Later that evening, Chief Brody sits pensively at the dinner table with his five-year-old son while his wife clears the dishes. And though Chief Brody may feel like a failure as the sheriff of Amity Island, he's too lost in thought to see that his son still wants to be just like Dad. The chief drinks, the boy drinks. The chief folds his hands. The boy folds his hands. The chief puts his face in his hands. The boy puts his face in his hands. Then, as the chief pulls his hands down from his face, he notices the movement of his son. He squints his eyes. The boy squints his eyes. He makes a monster face. The boy makes a monster face. He then pulls the boy towards him for a kiss. Meanwhile, the chief's wife has stood in the kitchen doorway watching her son give comfort to her husband. At this point in the story, Chief Brody, scientist Matt Hooper, and all the people of Amity Island know that a shark has been their menace. But the townspeople believe the shark has been caught, and their summer season is going to open on schedule. However, Chief Brody and Matt Hooper aren't as sure the shark they've caught is the shark they need. Hooper's especially concerned because he measured the bite radius of the shark they caught. It's smaller than the bite radius found on the remains of Chrissy Watkins, the first victim.
So he goes to Chief Brody's home that evening to convince him there's only one way to find out if this is their fish. Hooper explains to Chief Brody that the digestive system of a shark is very slow. Anything he's eaten in the last 24 hours, including little Alex Kittner, will still be in the elementary canal of the shark. So the best way to find out if this shark is indeed the menace of Amity is to cut him open. And because Chief Brody knows the summer season is opening at sunrise, he heads down to the dock with Matt Hooper for a late night autopsy. In the shark's belly, they found an old boot, a big fish, and a Louisiana license plate. But no remains of Alex Kittner. This is not their shark. The menace of Amity Island is still out there. And only Chief Brody and Matt Hooper know it. But the 4th of July is only hours away now. And they know they'll need physical proof to convince the mayor to close those beaches. So in the dark of night, Chief Brody and Matt Hooper head out to sea on a shark-finding mission. On their way, they see the wrecked boat of a local fisherman. To Chief Brody's dismay, Matt Hooper wants to go for a night dive. He says he wants to check out the hull. Chief Brody would much rather they just tow the boat in and examine it then. Hooper wants to see it now, and into the dark ocean he goes. As he approaches the boat from underneath, he sees a large hole in its side and the tip of a shark tooth in the wood.
When he pulls out that tooth, it's bigger than his thumb. Encouraged by what he found, he goes back for more. But instead of finding another shark tooth, he gets a bigger surprise. The head of Ben Gardner comes through that hole. Matt Hooper returned quite quickly to his own boat. But in the commotion, that shark tooth fell to the ocean floor. Because Matt Hooper dropped that tooth, Chief Brody has no proof that a killer shark still lurks the waters of Amity Island. So the mayor isn't interested in his fish story. Chief Brody tries to convince him if they act now, they could save their August. The mayor laughs. He tells them to do what they need to do to protect the people. But tomorrow is the 4th of July, and the beaches will be open. As the ferry lets the summer people onto the island, they're greeted by vendors selling shark souvenirs and pictures of happy fishermen and their catch. Behind the scenes, Chief Brody is working feverishly to hire anyone with a gun in a boat to help patrol the swimming areas. The sun is shining, the beaches are full, and life looks good on Amity. But Chief Brody is still concerned about what lurks beneath their waters, and is nervously patrolling the beach himself. Two boys give everyone quite a scare with their fake shark fin. But moments later, the scare is real when a shark is spotted in the pond area where a lot of the young sailors are, including Chief Brody's son, Michael. The boys and a sailing coach didn't see the fins of the shark coming, but they know what's happened when both their boats are overturned. Chief Brody's son watches in helpless horror as the shark goes after the coach.
the coach clings to his upturned boat, but the shark bites below the waist, and the coach's leg falls to the ocean floor. Then the coach disappears. But the shark doesn't. He heads straight for Michael. Fortunately for Michael, the shark must have been full as he continues out to sea. Michael goes into shock and is taken to the hospital. He'll be all right, but Chief Brody won't rest now until he sees that shark strung up on a pier somewhere. With the last attack done before everyone's very eyes, no one in Amity needs to be convinced they have a shark problem. Their hopes rest now on Chief Brody, scientist Matt Hooper, and the salty professional shark hunter, Quint, who head out to sea to go man against beast. Quint is as salty as they come. He's happy to take the town's $10,000, but not so happy to have to bring the chief and Matt Hooper along. But he decides the chief will be the first mate and Hooper can be ballast. Quint quickly realizes the sheriff of Amity Island is not very good on boats, so he takes him under his wing. He openly and proudly, however, shows his disdain for Matt Hooper and his fancy shark-catching technologies. Quint's confident his chum and his piano wire fishing line will do the trick. Chief Brody is doing the chumming, so he gets the first look at the beast. With his eyes wide and the hair on the back of his neck standing straight up, Chief Brody backs into the cabin and tells Quint they're going to need a bigger boat. Quint and Hooper come on deck, and though Chief Brody would much rather head back in and come back with a bigger boat, Quint and Hooper are eager to let the battle begin. Quint has Hooper turn the engines off to watch where the shark may go. It comes right at them and swims heedlessly behind the boat. Hooper thinks it's 20 feet long. Quint says 25 and three tons. Chief Brody once again asks if they're going to get a bigger boat. Quint ignores him and gets his spear gun. 
To Hooper's delight, the shark begins to circle the boat. As Quint is putting his harpoon together, the radio cackles with a call from Chief Brody's wife. Quint tells her all is fine here, they're catching a few stripers, and her husband will be home for dinner. Meanwhile, the shark continues to circle, and Hooper is up on deck excitedly trying to get a picture of the shark using Chief Brody for perspective. The chief's perspective is to get out of the way as fast as he can. on deck now with his harpoon ready. He tells the nervous chief to steer the boat. He tells Hooper to connect the harpoon rope to one of the large yellow barrels on deck. Hooper goes to do it, but remembers something and leaves it undone as he runs back into the cabin. We see he has a homing device he's going to tie onto the rope. But the shark is coming on fast now. Quint is hollering to get that barrel attached. Hooper returns and gets the device tied on just as the shark passes below the bow of the boat. Quint fires and hits the shark straight on. And away he goes, with one barrel attached. Quint and Hooper are feeling quite confident now, but they're curious as to just how long this shark can go with one barrel attached. But he sure isn't going out slowly as he races away from the boat. But Hooper turns on that motor, and chases right after him. He knows just where to go until that shark dives down, taking the barrel with him. Soon the sun goes down as well, and the three men on the boat start a long night together. For now, peace has descended on the seas. So the men sit down for some dinner and some drinks. They've got a lot of time on their hands and they get to know a little bit more about each other.
Earlier in the day, they had speared their nemesis and attached a barrel on a rope. Now they were waiting on his next move. They had had their dinner and some drinks, so had nothing to do but talk. A conversation starts when Quint notices Chief Brody tending to one of his wounds. He assures him it won't be permanent. This kicks off a friendly competition between Quint and Hooper as they compare the permanent scars on their bodies from the likes of moray eels, thresher sharks, boisterous St. Patrick's Day parties, and even Mary Ellen Moffat, who broke Hooper's heart. The chief has nothing to add, but he does ask Quint about one more scar. The laughter dies down now when Quint tells them, it's the scar where his tattoo of the USS Indianapolis used to be. He tells him that was the ship in World War II that delivered the Hiroshima bomb. On the way back from their mission, they took two torpedoes from a Japanese submarine. It turns out their mission was so secret, no distress signal was sent. In fact, they weren't even listed as overdue for a week. but the sharks found them right away. They began feasting on the men until a pilot spotted them and effected a rescue about five days later. 1,100 men went in the water. 316 came out. The tension is finally broken when Hooper starts singing an old barroom ditty. All three of the men welcome the respite, and soon they're all singing together, complete with homemade sound effects. But that joyful noise comes to an abrupt end when the shark makes his presence known again. The boat is under attack. And just as suddenly as he came, the shark left again, leaving behind three men on a battered, but still working, boat. The next morning, the yellow barrel is there to greet them. When Quint and Hooper try to bring it in with the shark attached, the shark gives them a good scare breaking free of the water, jaws open. He bites the rope, and away he goes. The great chase is on. Quint readies his harpoon gun 
as Hooper attaches another barrel. The shark makes a loop around the boat, and Quint gets that spear in him. But it doesn't slow the shark in the least. With the fish going full speed, the men try and follow in the boat. And due to the beating that the engine took from the shark last night, it takes everything that boat has to keep up with that shark. But they do get close enough for another spear and another barrel to be attached. But it still doesn't slow down that shark. And quickly he dives with the two barrels attached. When he comes up next, he's close enough for the men to grab the two barrels. They attach the ropes to the boat, and Quint begins a triumphant run back to the taxidermy man, or so he thinks. Soon, to their shock, the shark begins pulling them, and eventually pulls those cleats right off the boat. But before he gets away, Quint gets one more barrel in him, and away he goes with three barrels attached. To the men's astonishment, the shark begins to chase them. Quint pushes his boat full throttle. until the engine blows. Adrift now, Hooper realizes their only shot is for him to get in the shark cage to try to shoot poison into the shark's mouth. The men put the shark cage together and lower Hooper into the water. He doesn't have to wait long for that shark to make his move. Hooper doesn't get the poison in, but he does manage to get away. He takes refuge on the ocean floor. Now it's down to two men on a boat versus the great white shark. And the shark is no longer waiting for them to come to him. It thrusts half its body up on the boat. The boat is one big slide into the shark's mouth. Quint and Brody are desperately clinging to the cabin walls. But when Quint's hand is crushed by a rolling oxygen tank, 
His grip is loosened. And with much sound and fury, into the shark he goes. With Quint gone, the only protection the town of Amity has left from the jaws of the beast is Chief Brody. But the boat is sinking fast. Chief Brody is trying to get through the debris to get to the high side of the boat. When the shark comes through the side again. He can practically see down into the belly of the beast. But he also sees an opportunity. The oxygen tank that hit Quinn's hand is still there. Brody picks it up and manages to stuff it into the shark's mouth as he recedes back into the sea. A glimmer of hope comes back to Brody's eyes. Somehow, he needs to blow that tank up. So he grabs the last dry rifle, climbs up to the top of the mast, and waits as he sees the shark's fin cutting through the waters, coming back for him. Chief Brody knows it's now or never. Brody is shooting, but the circling shark eludes him. As the shark cruises out of range, Brody settles in, knowing he only has a few shots left. He shoots. He shoots again. He shoots one more time. And... He hits. The shark is blown to bits. What remains of the shark slowly sinks to the ocean floor. As Chief Brody contemplates his bittersweet victory, up pops Matt Hooper, who'd been watching the final battle from under the water. The two of them rig up a raft from what remains of the boat and begin kicking their way home. The sun is shining, the sky is blue again, and the people of Amity Island are safe to enjoy their summer season. The story of Jaws is based on a novel by Peter Benchley. 
The music of Jaws was composed by John Williams. Today's music was from a 1995 recording of the Royal National Scottish Orchestra. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the music of Jaws. Thank you for listening to The Sound of Movies. The Sound of Movies is a production of the Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. Thank you for listening. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.